Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. talking about 1st and 2nd Samuel. We were talking about how the narratives in 1st and 2nd Samuel uh, paint for us many, many, many different pictures of what leadership should look like and what it shouldn't look like. And so we pointed out the fact that the book is riddled with uh, rivaling forms of leadership. And uh, we talked about how uh, there are principles that can be derived that should guide us in our ministry and in our discipleship. Uh, the book should help us to identify what a good leader is, what the expectations of a good leader are, um, how to develop them, how to encourage leaders. Uh, as pastors, we were hopefully gaining insight into what it looks like to cultivate good leadership in those that we love and are investing in in our ministry uh, so that so that God can use us uh, through the work of discipleship to meet the objectives that his great commission lays before us. So if we want to see uh, our churches grow, uh, if we want to see our churches strong, if we want to see ministry expanded, if we want to see churches planted and we want to see missionaries going out, then it, it's going to require that we invest in men and women as well. Right? We need to develop uh, strong leadership. And so we've been talking about a tale of two houses. And, and, and so yesterday we talked about the contrasting leadership of Hannah and Penina. Uh, we talked about the contrasting leadership of Samuel's, uh, Samuel's rulership in, in the priesthood and Eli's. And now today we're going to talk about David and Saul a little bit. So I'm going to present to you two principles and then I'm going to tag my, my partner in here. And he's going to take over uh, from there. So today we're talking about David and Saul. And last we left off, the nation had decided, uh, because of some improprieties in Samuel's family, decided that they didn't want to go the route of the judges anymore. They wanted a monarch. They wanted a king. They wanted to look like the other nations. And so 1 Samuel 8.4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now again, there are so many wonderful principles here that we don't have time to address, but it's, it's incredible, leaders, for us to remember, just briefly, I don't want to go down this road, okay, I can't, I, can't. I, don't, I don't have time. It's so wonderful to see God relieve us of the burden of other people's decisions, right? So Samuel is heartbroken over this decision, and he goes before the Lord and they have this conversation, and, and God reminds them, look, bro, they haven't rejected you. They're rejecting me. And so, so 
I appreciate your concern for the kingdom agenda. I really do. But this is something, it's something I have to deal with. This is, on, this is a situation, this is between me and the nation. And so let me take care of it. And so God does. So let's fast forward here just a bit for the sake of time. Through a series of, event, of events, unfortunate events, if you will, there is a Benjamite named Saul that finds himself in the city of Zuph where Samuel lives. And he and his servant that are with him are curious about whether or not this prophet, priest, judge will be able to help them find the herd of asses that they've managed to lose. Again, there's a lot to see here because what we have is foreshadowing of what kind of leader Saul really is, right? They're looking everywhere for this herd, nowhere to be found, can't find them. And so, uh, you know, contrast that against the shepherding skills that we find in our man David, right? There's a lot to see there. We won't have, we don't, again, we don't have time for it. But look, uh, Saul is the guy that God chose as king. And God makes that clear. He chose Saul. Now remember what Pastor Shelby always says, that God's providence has eyes. And so God gives them the king that they want, but he also gives them the king that they deserve. And to behold King, to, to behold king Saul with your eyes was to behold a man that looked like a king. When you saw him, you would have said, if, if anyone is a king, this man must be. 1 Samuel 9, 2 says, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. So Saul's natural appearance was that he was handsome, big, strong, and yet as the narrative continues, we learn that he was a man of weak constitution. So whenever I think of Saul, I think of Gaston, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? From Beauty and the Beast? That's, that's Saul in my mind, okay? Big, strong, strapping, right? And yet a man of weak character and of a weak spirit. In fact, we learn almost immediately after his appointment, after he is anointed as king, that he had a greater fear of men than he did of God. We learn that almost immediately. Well, where do we see that? Well, after God's repeated confirmation to both, to both Samuel and to Saul, over, you, know, you know, on his way back home, remember, he encounters uh, uh, all those people and all those signs that, that point, look, bro, this is going to be evidence that you're supposed to be the king. And all those things transpire, and he's falling out, acting like a prophet. And, it, and, it's, and, he, and so Saul has to know, well, okay, I guess it is me. It clearly is. And despite all of that, and despite Paul, uh, Saul's own personal acknowledgement, at his ordination, where do we find him? We find him hiding from the, fe uh, the people for fear of their judgment. He's at his own confirmation. Can you imagine? You're going to ordain one of the guys in your church, and he's so scared to be in front of everybody, he's hiding in one of the office, in one of the broom closets. I mean, that's basically what we're seeing. He's supposed to be anointed as and, and ordained before the people, and he's hiding because he's afraid of what people might think. So, standing in contrast to Saul is the man David, and as we all know, Saul and his family are eventually rejected from the monarchy. 
So Samuel is now entrusted with the job of going and anointing the future king. Right? This guy's not, you know, it's, it's not until uh, Saul relinquishes his monarchy that David has an opportunity to take, uh, to take his place. But in, in God's foresight, um, we, we all know that Samuel dies before David has an opportunity to take the throne. And so in God's foresight, he sends Samuel out to find the man that will replace Saul. And so if Saul looked just like a king, then David looked nothing like a king. And when Samuel encountered him, he could hardly believe that this was God's chosen minister. Let's look at this, 1 Samuel 16. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, and the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called uh, Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. Okay, do you see the contrast? Where is, where is David found versus where Saul was found? He's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was, he was ready, and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so here's our principle. Principle number four. Leadership is not measured by outward appearance or skill, but is identified by faith-filled character. Leadership is not measured by outward appearance or skill, but is identified by faith-filled character. And as we said yesterday, as pastors, it's really easy for us to fixate on finding the talent that will meet the need of our ministry. We're looking for talented people to the point where some of us, some of us are willing to look past besetting character flaws. So I often hear pastors talk about, um, you know, someone will come into their church and they'll say, man, so-and-so, so-and-so has so much potential. They've got so much potential. But how many of us could honestly say that we would rather have a faithful man with limited gifting than a gifted man who struggles to be faithful? How many of us could honestly say that, that we would rather have that faithful man? We so often focus on what we think the church needs rather than what God wants. And so we compromise by elevating men above their station. We elevate them beyond the capacity that their character allows. Men that aren't proven out. 
So here's the deal. Potential is only just potential without faith and zeal. It's just potential. Potential is nothing without the right activity. I, mean, this is, I don't know much about physics, but I know that that's true. There has to be the activation of faith to make potential worth anything. So to further illustrate this point, let's jump ahead. Okay? We are, we're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? We're all familiar with that. There's no need to rehash that story. Goliath is a really big guy. He's like nine feet tall or something, right? He's huge. Dude's got uh, too many fingers. He's got, what, six fingers and six toes, which for me, you know, I don't care how tall he is. That's like completely insignificant. The fact that he has six fingers and six toes makes him the scariest person ever. It's disgusting. He could be three feet tall. But if he had six fingers and six toes, just saying, it's scary. So the, the main thing is that he has a killer reputation, right? That everyone is afraid of him. And he's encamped with the Philistines against the Israelites, and he's out there in the valley uh, mocking, mocking God for 40 consecutive days. Now, we should know, if we're, you know, we're biblicists here, we, know, we understand that 40 is a picture of testing. And so he's testing. Well, who's he, te he's, who's he testing? Well, he's testing the character of David and Saul. He's testing the character of God's men. He's mocking God. And we're going to find out. We're going to find out who will win, who wins out. So in this corner, we have King Saul the leader of the nation of Israel, leader of the army of Israel. And in terms of stature, he's the tallest man in all Israel. We already read that. He's the biggest man available to them. Of, is, of the Israelites, he's the most natural person to select to go into battle against Goliath. Because by all outward appearances, he is the most physically qualified candidate to face Goliath. Saul was the most formidable opponent for Goliath to face pound for pound. And yet, we find him elusively avoiding harm. Hoping that this Goliath situation would just take care of itself. Now, in the other corner, over here, we have the leader of a flock of sheep. Leaders are formed. A leader's heart will often take form long before their outward maturity does. Sometimes the heart of a leader is born in the, in the crucible of a man's heart long before they're five feet tall. Or long before they've got their finances figured out. Or long before they can hold a job down. God is building within men in our church who by all outward appearances are completely immature and unqualified. He is building in the hearts of men and women leadership 
that goes way beyond what we could ever even imagine. And it is true potential. It's, it's potential in the, in the truest sense of the word. A leader must be a leader from the inside out. God told Samuel that he measures leadership by what's in the heart versus what the naked eye beholds. And I wonder if there are people that we elevate that should not be elevated. And I wonder if there are people that we pass by because we are deceived by our human reasoning. Just a thought. Just a leadership thought moving right along. Principle number five. We're still talking about Saul and David. And this will be my last one, and I'll, I'll tag in Kenny. Early on in chapter 15, we learn that God has tasked Saul with a very specific mission. To go and utterly destroy the Amalekites and everything that they own. Everything. God and the nation had been waiting for this moment for a really long time. And here it is. It's arrived. Finally, finally, they can, they can have revenge, justice, for what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt in the wilderness. And so, again, I'd I, I love to talk about it. Can't. Don't have time. So Saul gathers his army, and they go out to put down this Amalekite people and, and to end their reign of terror. These are, these are terrorists in the truest sense of the word. These are terrorists, and God has asked them to put them down completely, wipe them out, wipe them off the face of the earth. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and, spite, uh, and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Lots to think about there. Uh, theologically, we, don't, we won't get into that, but God is justified. He is justice and this is, this is justice. This is, this is the right thing. So this is the command. But as we know, uh, Saul fails to obey. He fails to obey. And instead, he spares the very best for himself and for the wealth of the nation. So 1 Samuel 15, 9 says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. And Samuel's grieved by this. It, it, he prays all night long before the Lord. And then the next morning, he goes and he meets Saul to hold him accountable. And Samuel asks him, what meaneth this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? In other words, I, I, I'm hearing a lot of livestock. Where did this livestock come from? So, Saul provides us with a very slimy justification. Okay, again, imagine Gaston. Slimy. And so verse 20 says, And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and hath brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. 
But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief, the chief of things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice, okay, chill out, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Okay, so let's break Saul's response down for a second because we, there's something to glean here. Saul's response, there's a lot to say about this. We're going to focus on just one thing, but, but here's the deal. So Saul refuses to admit sin. That's a problem. He's a leader. He's refusing to admit sin. Okay. How many pastors and leaders have that wrapped up in their heart? Can't be wrong. Can't be wrong. Okay, moving along though. Saul blames the people. He pulls your blank. Saul blames the people for his failure when sparing the animals. So he's blaming the people. That's the thing we're going to come back to here in a second. And then third, Saul uses spiritual language in order to excuse and justify his failure. Something that we too are often uh, guilty of. But let's dissect one of these attributes with principle number five. So let's look at principle number five. A weak leader, a weak leader is quick to blame failure on those they lead rather than themselves. A weak leader is quick to blame failure on those they lead rather than themselves. Now I believe uh, that every leader struggles with being prone to frustration with the flock. There's not a single leader in this room who hasn't, in the last week, been tempted towards frustration with God's people. It's just a, it's just a fact of the work. When ministry is hard, it's going to test our long-suffering and forbearance. It's going to do that. It can be very difficult to lead. And to be honest with you, we are often justified in our disappointments. Disappointing things happen. And we should be disappointed a little bit. Because if we weren't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't acknowledge that something's wrong. Like if something's wrong, it should also be somewhat disappointing. But the problem is, like Moses, we often say, Numbers 11, 11, wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I found favor in thy sight? Thou layest the burden of all this people upon me. Like what have I done? God, what have I done to you to make, make me a pastor of these people? How have I offended you that you would give me these people? Usually we've got to list the names, Right? In our mind. But I want, to, I want to point something out that I've observed in pastors and leaders that's very troubling to me. And I think it's worth addressing, and it's this. When there is failure in ministry, we are often quick to blame other people before we take time to consider whether or not the failures stem from our own leadership. You know, the dumbest thing I, I ever heard when I was a kid was like, well, when you're, you're pointing at someone, four fingers are pointing back to you. Well, actually, it's only three. That's the first thing. 
But also, it was just in my mind, it was just silly, just silly. It's so true. Listen, let's be honest with ourselves. The leaders that we have, those are the leaders that we develop. The, the men that stand with us, the women that stand with us in ministry, that we've given responsibility, that walk with us in life, that do ministry with us, that we have, that we have promoted in different ways, these leaders are the leaders we developed. If we have a leader who isn't stepping up, oh, they're just not stepping up, they're just, oh. The first response shouldn't be, so-and-so should know better, or they should be more fruitful, they should be more mature than this. Our first response should be, maybe I didn't communicate this properly. Or, or maybe I didn't take enough time to train them. Or maybe this is a weakness that I missed or I failed to address early on. See, look, people are going to fail in ministry. They're going to make mistakes. In fact, they should. That's how they learn. But a true leader always sees those things as their own failure before they see it as anyone else's. So in Saul, we see a tendency to cast blame on anyone and everyone beside himself. And I think this is an insecurity that a lot of leaders struggle with. It's bad leadership. It's hopeless. I mean, don't you feel hopeless when you do that? What's the, ans what's the answer for you? Oh, God, you gave me these people. What do I do with them? They're always screwing up. It's failure everywhere we go. They won't, they won't step up in ministry. I just can't get them to do the things that I want them to. How are we ever going to get anything done for you, God? That's a hopeless way of thinking. Because then what you've, you've decided, you've determined in your mind that you are sovereignly boxed in. That there's nothing you can do. It's just the people's fault. It's reactive, and it's not, it's not good leadership. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, we have a very clear example in 1 Samuel of David's failure, but a very distinctly different response. In chapter 29, we see David with a very strange company. He has regrettably allied himself with Israel's enemy. When God gives him a way of escaping this awkward situation, he and his men, men eagerly return home. And when they get there, they return to Ziklag, they find that they have been raided and their camp burned by the Amalekites. Interesting. Interesting. Isn't it? Saul's failure kind of becomes David's problem. But all of the men's families had been kidnapped. All of them. So you have soldiers, they return to the camp. It's burned. All their stuff's gone. Their wives and their children, gone. Gone. And all because David's frivolous and misgu misguided confederation that resulted in this disaster. He messed up. He messed up. He found himself in an awkward situation. He didn't know how to get out. God took care of the situation, but uh, there were some consequences. And these men were broken. You can imagine. I mean, if you read the story, it's hard not to cry. Like it's, it's, it's hard not to be moved by what's happening. These men returned to camp. They've been following David everywhere. He's worn them ragged. These are the most loyal men on the face of the earth. And they return back to camp and their family's gone, their children are gone. 
and their distress to the point, the point that they were blaming David and they were ready to kill him. But look at, look at what David does. Verse 30, or sorry, chapter 30, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. And then David, David responds. Okay, this is different than Saul's response. David responds in verse 6. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So David finds his perspective, not in his own logic, not in his own reasoning. He finds perspective in God. And he gets encouraged. Next, he, he, he finds his answers in God. It's not just that he's encouraged, but he finds his answers in God. That's where we find answers to problems, to failures, to mistakes. We find the answers there with, with the Lord, in his word, in prayer. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Wow. But here's the third thing. And this is the thing that I need us to get. David recovers his leaders. He recovers their hearts by leading them. David recovers his leaders' hearts. Not like, you know, Saul casts blame. He's frustrated. He's like, oh, it's, it's, these, it's their fault. But David fixes the situation because God gives him perspective. He gives him a directive. And then he leads his leaders. Guys, when we fail, when we mess up, when there's failure in ministry, as leaders, let's own that. And then let's correct that by leading people. Let's re-envision them. Let's reinvigorate them in God's word. Let's point the way. Let's say it's not done yet. We've messed up. It's not over. It's just one, it's just one hurdle of many that we'll face. It is not over. Let's go. Let's go recover what God gave us. 1 Samuel 13, 17, And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening, and the next day, and there escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men, which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. So he rescues everything, including the hearts of those that he leads. He was this close to losing the hearts of those that he was investing in, those future leaders, those mighty men. He was this close. And the solution that God gave him was, lead your men. Pursue. Don't quit. Pick your swords up and go. And that's the solution for us too. As leaders, I think one of the healthiest things that we can do is remember that when it appears that God's people have failed, we must, we must remember that as leaders, we are culpable. And if there are weaknesses or deficiencies in the ministry, that begins with us. So it's not, it's not, there's no reason to be afraid. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something, it's something to lead through. Okay? It's something that we ought to lead through. And so, okay, I've got a lot to say, but I'm a, it's your turn, bro. You've got 30. Got it? Are you ready? Okay. Good morning, everyone. 
All right, this will work. So uh, just, to, uh, just to reinforce uh, just the connection from a discipleship perspective with the principles that we're covering this week, it's important for us to know that whatever the state of leadership is in any local church is a reflection of what you're going to reproduce in discipleship. And so this is why it's so critical to, uh, to, to have these principles down corporately as a church because everything reproduces after its own kind, right? And so as we're walking through these, uh, so are we, am I both on like this and this or just this? Okay, all right, all good, all good. Okay, so we're going to continue. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel now. And historically, when you look at the book of 2 Samuel, uh, it's simply a continuation of, of where we leave off in the book of 1 Samuel. Doctrinally, uh, 2 Samuel uh, gives you a very rich depiction of David as a type of Christ. It's just loaded with uh, typology throughout the book. Uh, in 1 Samuel, you see... Uh, a very clear focus on four men primarily, uh, Samuel, King Saul, David, and Jonathan. But you get to 2 Samuel, and the focus primarily is on David, his ascent to the throne, and the men around him. And that's where it gets very, very interesting uh, when you look at that. When you look at David's ascent to the throne and you talk about him uh, being a type of Christ in 2 Samuel, and you look at the events that preceded him taking the throne, you'll see that they're very consistent with the events that will happen before Christ takes the throne at the second advent in the millennium. And so you can see that typology unfold there. Um, but when you look at all the men that were around David, this is where now we can begin to extract a number of very critical leadership principles uh, that are very critical for leaders to serve the Lord in ministry. But when you look at leadership under the house of David compared to the house of Saul, the biggest difference that you see was that David had the most challenging form of leadership that I think that there is, and that is leading leaders. That is a very challenging form of leadership. It's not that Saul wasn't a leader of leaders. It's that for the most part, David was not self-serving in his leadership, whereas Saul clearly was, as we just heard. Now, I think with this crowd, we'll get corporate agreement very quickly about the importance of leadership development in the church. I, I think we all get that, and we would say amen to that. We recognize how critical it is for the health of the church and whatnot. But when you talk about leading leaders, that's where it can get so very interesting, right? It can get very, very interesting. Uh, leadership development sounds wonderful, but at times, if we're honest, when you're leading leaders, that can be very arduous. That can be incredibly painful at times without a doubt. And maybe it's just me, but I've had moments. I've had a few moments in ministry where I've thought to myself, you know, it wouldn't be so bad to not be the leader, to not be a leader today, to not be a leader in this season, to to just be that guy who just kind of hangs out in the back and comes in and slips out and I tithe, not a problem, uh, but man, I don't want this thing called leadership. So as we start looking at 2 Samuel and this transition from the house of Saul to the house of David, 
uh, you, you begin to just see uh, this first principle unfold very early on in 2 Samuel. Israel's defeated in battle by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, and in that, lost its king, Saul, Jonathan, his sons, the nation, uh, humiliated there. And when you look at David's actions uh, early on here, they shine so brightly, and they challenge us uh, to the core. Look at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. It says, Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. Now, David was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 13. So he knew this day was coming. He knew the day was coming when one day he would reign as the king of Israel. Not to mention, Saul had made his life an absolute nightmare for about a decade. Had David been a carnal man, this would have been a great day. This would have been welcome news. The man who had made his life a nightmare, the man who had unjustifiably made him his enemy is finally out of the way. And maybe just now I can have a little peace in my life. Maybe now I can walk the streets without looking over my shoulder every five seconds to see, is this the day where this guy gets me? Instead, he responded to the news in genuine mourning. And not only that, led other men to do the same thing. Here's the first critical principle for me to cover. It's the sixth one that we're covering this week, and it is this. Leaders must guard their hearts. They must. That is very, very critical. The biggest difference between Saul and David was one man was after his own heart, and the other was after God's own heart. It's the biggest difference. And that's always a big difference in leadership to this day. First uh, Samuel 13, 14, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him, a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And of course, that followed uh, Saul's foolish decision to unlawfully offer a sacrifice, not being a priest. And it's one of a number of episodes in his life that revealed that he was not a man after God's own heart. But how easy, how easy would it have been for David to make this about him? How easy would it have been? If he was like Saul, then it would have been a great day. And it would have been a great day for the Amalekite stranger who brought him the news about Saul's demise in battle. But because David was a man after God's own heart, this was not a win. Israel had lost in battle to the Philistines, and that was grievous to David. Look at chapter 1 and verse 20. David said, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Gath and Ascalon represented the whole land of the Philistines, if you would, and the image of them rejoicing, the image of them celebrating Israel's demise was grievous to David. Israel was also officially without a king at this moment. 
And that rendered them vulnerable to all their enemies. And David knew that. Saul and Jonathan, Jonathan, his closest friend in the world, and other men had lost their lives in battle. This is very, very critical for us. David did not view Saul's demise as a win for him personally. He did not. This was not a win for him personally. Great, he's out of the way. You know what that guy did to me? Consider Proverbs 17 and verse 5. Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. See, without the heart of God and ministry leadership, what is considered a win or loss in ministry gets distorted very quickly. It does. And that's very problematic for someone in leadership because leaders always have an audience. Always. David's men were watching him very closely during this time, and so was the nation. They were watching him during this transition. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 36. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. More on Abner in just a moment. But had David viewed Saul's calamity as a personal win for him, that would have set the tone for what he was about and what his reign was going to be about. And his leaders and the nation would have known that. They would have known that he was not any different than Saul. It was the same guy at heart. Here's a very sober reality, at least it is for me. I think it should be for all of us in leadership, but here's a very sober reality. Over time, God's people can discern whether the leader has the heart of God or not. They can tell. Over time, they can tell what this is about and who this is about. Over time, God makes it clear. The people saw here that David was different than Saul. They saw it. Now, God said something about David that I think is very, very critical, and it shows us how to practically guard our heart in ministry. We find it in Acts 13, beginning in verse 21. And afterward, they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years, and when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, and here it is, which shall fulfill all my will. Which shall fulfill all my will. When you talk about the will of God, you're simply talking about what it is that God desires. What is the heart of God? What is it that he wants? What is it that he desires? And for the leader who is after God's own heart, that's where wins and losses are defined. That's where wins and losses get very, very clear. 
Is this what God desires? Is this what is is this is this what is on the heart of God? Is this um, going to be pleasing to Him? Will this bring glory to God? Is God pleased? Then that's the focus. That's the desire. That's the decision. That's the direction. That's the motive. It's not what I want. It's not about me. It's about whatever it is. I love John eight twenty nine speaking about Jesus, and it says he always did those things that pleased him. That's it. That's it. Had David been glad at Saul's calamity and rewarded the Amalekite stranger, listen, it would have grieved God to the core, and it would have been a loss for David. Would have been a loss. And here are just a few critical questions that I've, 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 I've come to ask myself and consider in ministry. And I'll just share them with you. I think you might find some value in these yourself, but I think these are just some questions that kind of help me stay between the lines and keep my heart in check. Who am I rooting for and who am I rooting against? What am I rooting for and what am I rooting against? Those questions help me stay between the lines. See, if we're not guarding our hearts, we can find ourselves secretly rooting for other brethren to fail. Secretly rooting for them to fail, which is very dark. And that's where ministry can take a very dark and competitive turn. Very carnal. It's not about the will of God, not about God's heart, not about God's glory, not about what pleases God. This has officially become about me. And this is not new. Consider Luke 9, 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? Now, if it got competitive with the disciples who walked with God in the flesh. What does that say to us if we don't have the heart of God today? We'll have the same outcome. And answering the questions, who shall abide in God's tabernacle and who shall abide in God's holy hill? One of the answers that David gave in Psalm 15 verse 4 reads, and whose eyes a vile person is contemned but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. It is so critical for me to make sure that I am for the right people and I'm for the right things. That sounds simple, if not obvious, but if I'm not guarding my heart, I can find myself so easily rooting wrongly in ministry. It's been amazing over the years to and you have these very uh, sobering realities that come with ministry leadership at times, and it can be very disturbing, even very hurtful. But you can come to learn that <clears throat> you're competing with someone that you had no idea you were competing with. It's like, when did we become competitors? I thought we were brothers in Christ. I thought we were friends. I thought we were for each other. I didn't know this was a competition of sorts. And when it gets to that point, you know what you're doing? All you're competing for is vainglory, which is glory that is spent and wasted on self. Is that not what God saw? 
Uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand, and everything changed. Everything changed. David slaying his ten thousands was a win for the glory of God and for the nation of Israel, but listen, it was a loss for Saul. God got glory in that. The nation won, but I didn't. Why? Because he failed to guard his heart. When we guard our hearts, what it does is it reinforces that this thing called ministry has never been about me, is not about me, and it never will be about me. And this is where it gets so tempting. One of the principles that that Brandon talked about was, was this attitude of entitlement and elitism. And that can happen so easily in ministry leadership. You know, people adore you, respect you, like you, and all of a sudden, you start reading your own press. And you start getting impressed with yourself. And once you get impressed with yourself, well, absolutely, this is about me now. So, hey, listen, I praise the Lord. I have, um, so many of you know, Troy and I have walked together for 30 years. I love him. He's my guy. We're tight, really tight. But I have another friend who is as close as Troy. His name is Failure. (laughs) His name is Failure. I thank God for Failure. It's awful at times. It hurts. It grieves the spirit of God. It doesn't please the Lord. But I'm going to tell you, one of the best things about failure, man, it keeps you humble. Failure has been very good to me. <laughs> Anytime I, I might be tempted to say, man, what did they say about me? <laughs> what? They said that? Oh, man. <laughs> Maybe I am. And then a day or two, just, just like, okay, I, I know who I am. <laughs> We're good. We're real good, Lord, right? Failure keeps you where you need to be. It keeps you low. Now, one of the principles, one of the reasons that this principle is so critical is because of the next one that we're going to look at. And this next principle that we're going to look at is at best a pipe dream if you don't have principle 6 down. Like all you can do is essentially entertain yourself with it. If you don't have the heart of God, we're just wasting our time here. The seventh principle is this. Leaders must learn how to get hurt well. That's tough. Leaders must learn how to get hurt well. I was told many years ago in the Shepherd School of Ministry that if you're going to be in ministry, you've got to have thick skin. I read not long ago that the hide of a crocodile is thick enough to stop a bullet. So from that, I think one of my goals is to get my skin as thick as a crocodile's. Because sometimes you need it in ministry. Because the reality is, and many of you in this room know this, getting hurt in ministry is not an elective. Boy, how we wish it was. We'd pass on that, wouldn't we? There will be times when people that you have faithfully loved and led and poured yourself into and given them everything to thrive and succeed for the glory of God. 
and they're going to drive a dagger right in your heart. And you will be gasping for emotional air. That's tough. Real quick, turn to Psalm 41 and verse 9 very quickly. So my coach just told me I need to speed it up. <laughs> no, let's make it sure. All right, yay. Mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his hill against me. Think that hurt? Oh, yeah. That burned. Without the heart of God, listen, we cannot get hurt well. Without the heart of God, we cannot get hurt well. Guess what happens? Vengeance becomes ours. No, vengeance is mine, saith Kenny. I will repay. And then guess what happens from there? We now create something that's very grievous to the Lord. We now create a culture of war and ministry. Saul hurt David deeply, but in David's eulogy, which is to this day, considered one of the greatest eulogies or laments of all time. Notice his heart once again. We're going to fly through these. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over, say it with me, Saul. Jonathan we get. The men that he would have known and loved that died in that battle, we can get that too. His love for the nation, we can get that. But, but he lamented over Saul? Verse 19, the beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? The mighty fallen was referring specifically to Saul and Jonathan. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. What? They were? I mean, Jonathan was, of course, but Saul? And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Verse 24, ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. Wow, what a contrast. When did everything turn? Everything turned when, when they were singing and dancing and, and praising David. Hey, he's killed his tens of thousands. That's where everything turned against Saul, right? Or turned for Saul. Now here's David saying, hey, a guy who turned on me because you were praising me, praise him. He was good to you. Wow. Abner was Saul's first cousin, captain of his army, led a rebellion after Saul died, went against the will of God. He was a carnal man. That's a whole different conversation. But led a rebellion, hurt David for sure, led to division and civil war in the kingdom. Joab and Abishai went behind David's back and murdered Abner. But notice how David spoke about Abner, 2 Samuel 3.31. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the bier. And they buried Abner in Hebron. 
And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth? Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, David sware, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else, till the sun be down. Like Saul, Abner made David his enemy. David had no desire to war with Abner. David would respond in the same fashion as he did when Ishbosheth or Ishbosheth was murdered. Spiritually speaking, this is where, for sure, when it comes to leadership, this is where we separate the men from the boys and the women from the girls. How do we speak about and deal with those who have hurt us? That's where you see a clear separation in leadership. Titus 3 and verse 2, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. This is how the leader who has God's heart responds. Without God's heart, we'll speak evil of those who have hurt us. We'll fight with them. We won't be gentle with them, and we won't show ourselves to be meek toward them. If I can be an open book here, this one is so very challenging for me. Some of the things that people say and do in church when they don't get their way will cut you to the core. They will denigrate you. They will only tell portions of a situation or story where when the dust clears, you're standing, you're the villain, and they're the victim. And I mean, they will conveniently leave out details. Like, wow, I, I can't believe you didn't include that part. And people who once looked at you and they had a countenance of love and brotherhood and fellowship and, and advocacy, now, because of this person who's now in their ear, they now look at you and it's changed. You know it. It's like, my goodness. And, here, and here's a lovely part. You don't, you, don't, you, don't get a, you don't get a voice. No, their version of events is authoritative. It's inspired, infallible. God breathe. You don't get the courtesy of, well, hey, let me, you know, I read somewhere about if you have an accusation against an elder, like there's a, like, <laughs> where are your witnesses? <laughs> Boy, I tell you, I wish I could stand here and, and be Teflon and say, ah, oh, stuff just rolls off me. Man, it doesn't. Some of those episodes have rocked me so bad. I mean, I've had seasons of intense discouragement. And the temptation is to go from being hurt to being angry. And once I'm angry, I'm ready for war now. I'm, I want war. I'll finish this. Which tempts me to speak evil, brawl, be rough, not gentle. There's a lot more we can say about this, but time is, is, is running. But here's what God has shown me to be very critical in learning how to get hurt well. 
Luke 23, 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Maybe it's me. But after taking a punch in the gut that I know was deliberate in my flesh, I'm thinking, Lord, they know what they're doing. And so since they know what they're doing, I don't have to pray for them. What I have to do is I got to settle this, and I will settle it. But even in the ignorance of doing what they were doing to Jesus, it doesn't nullify the reality that they were butchering him and inflicting unconscionable amounts of pain on him that he was enduring for them. That's getting hurt well. And here's the biggest takeaway for me about learning how to get well in ministry and I'll close with this, and I, and I think if I can just give you anything practical about learning how to get hurt well, this is where the Lord has led me. Pray for those who have hurt us every day until we have God's heart toward them. Pray for them every day until we know we have God's heart toward them. Or now, I'm not rooting against them. I'm not just waiting to get news about some calamity that's happened in their life so I can be glad. That no, I am genuinely burdened for them in the Lord. That I want God's best. I don't want God to deal with them so they can know what they did to me. No, I want God to deal with them so they can be right with him. Because in the end, it's about him. But we got to have God's heart. If we have God's heart, we'll get hurt. Well, Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us this morning to gather at the feet of your word. I do pray for your glory. It won't return void. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.